welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. And today we are talking about the hits from the 80s. We have on Holly Knight, who is a songwriter who wrote some of the most popular hits of the 80s from Kiss, Rod Stewart, Bon Jovi, Tina Turner. Tina Turner. And I'm going to let Bridget share some of the songs because she just fangirled. Oh, I did. It was definitely Better Be Good to Me was definitely one of my favorite songs. Ever. She just, so. we don't, we didn't even realize how many songs she wrote until we started talking to her. And she recently wrote a book called I Am the Warrior, My Crazy Life Writing the Hits and Rocking the MTV 80s. So we talked to her about the book. We talked to her about her experiences. Each chapter in the book talks about a different band, which is, or a different song that she wrote. And it's really cool to listen to her talk about how the role of MTV played, music videos, and how a lot of the songs she wrote, she would look at MTV and their videos, and it had absolutely nothing to do. That was one of my favorite things about the whole, just talking about um, the videos and what she thought of them. And I, I had thought the same thing and I didn't even know her <laughs> and I even right, exactly. when they were written. And I, I just thought, yeah, I wonder why they're doing that in that video. When she mentioned Pat Benatar, I was already, you know, a fangirl too. <laughs> so. Oh, Colleen, Colleen has teased me that I have fangirled so hard at this video, but those are the songs that I grew up with. And I couldn't believe that I was you talking were to someone the, yeah. that I was talking to someone that actually that wrote that was a creative genius behind all of these songs. But the process, you've got to read the book because you will learn a lot about the process of writing these songs and also some really great stories in there about the people that she meets along the way and the encounters and and who she hooked up with. <laughs> right. She, she she doesn't hold back there. And also some stories that'll You'll be like, oh, that's so disappointing on that in certain people. But John hey, Bon Jovi. I I'm know Colleen. I'm sorry, New Jersey. Devastated. New devastated. Jersey Colleen about that. But you know. Yeah. But you know, again, they made up since then. And well, you know, she's gonna tell you about the story, so we won't give you too much information about it. But let's just say when I read that chapter in the book, I was like, No, not she John. cried. Colleen cried. No, she didn't <laughs> cry. <laughs> I should have. But, but um, you know, yeah, that she dated yeah. Daryl Hall from Hall and Oates and Paul Stanley, who I used to dress up like for at least two different Halloweens. Yeah. And I will try <laughs> to get Bridget to post a picture in our Instagram. Oh, so I'll if you're find not- <laughs> them. I'll if you are not them. following us on Instagram, you need to because you want to see Bridget in her kiss costume. If you have any questions about what's going on on this episode, you can check out our show notes on our website, hotflasheskooltopics.com. We also have a newsletter that we send out every two week ish, sometimes a little longer, but it not only talks about these episodes, but it also shares a lot of information about women over 50, things we should know, things we should be interested in, maybe some book recommendations. So make sure you check that out. You can go to our website and a pop-up will appear. You can just put your email in and you'll start getting our newsletter. As we are going to get started with our conversation with Holly Knight. Enjoy the conversation and we will talk to you after. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics. Today, we are excited to talk to Holly Knight. And if you were a fan of the 80s music of MTV, you have more than certainly heard several of the songs that Holly Knight has written. Welcome to the show, Holly. 
Thanks for having me. I want to just start off with, you know, a lot of times well-known people have certain individuals that come into your life that change their trajectory. And it seems like the first person in your life was Michael Chapman or Mike Chapman. Can you talk about how you met the music producer and how that kind of went from you being in a band called Spider to being a songwriter? Well, I was in a band, as you just mentioned, and we were getting ready to uh, make a record deal and we were thinking about producers and the other band members were interested in someone else. There were three South Africans in the group and they had become friends with another producer, Eddie Kramer, who was also South African. So they had that expatriate thing going. Um, and Eddie had done a lot of amazing records, uh, an artist like Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. Um, but he was more of an engineer type producer, um, and the difference between that and Mike Chapman is I had heard about Mike Chapman and he was a songwriter. He even wrote songs that other people cut that had nothing to do with him as a producer. But he was really having a really strong streak at that time. He was the number one producer doing like all the hip bands. Like he did all the Blondie records. And if you remember that song, My Sharona with the Knack. Sure. And he did Hot Child in the City with Nick Gilder and just just all those great Blondie songs. And I really wanted to work with a producer that had that sort of song that in his toolbox, you know, someone that could really address songs and not just sort of push the faders. I kind of made it a, a, a mission of mine to get a hold of him. And, you know, it wasn't so easy in those days. We didn't have the Internet and things like that. Uh, we had a really good manager, Bill, Bill Coyne, who managed Kiss, but he was really busy at the moment. At that time, he didn't want to talk about producers until we got a deal, you know. So uh, it, a few m months went by, and then I met him sort of serendipitously at a party, and I happened to have a tape, which I gave him. It's all in the book. And then he said to me, I'm really busy, and I'm really bad at calling people back, but just keep calling me. If I don't call you, just keep calling me and reminding me that, that I have your tape and that I promise to listen to it. So I did. I did that for about two weeks, and I was relentless because he said I could be. Um, and he never called me back. And then uh, one day, finally, after about two weeks, he called and said, I'm getting on a plane. I'm done with the Blondie record. He said, but, and, and my heart sunk. I thought, okay, so he's not going to listen to it. And now he's leaving. But he said, I'm on the plane. I'm a captive victim. I am going to listen to your tape. I promise. And I'll call you in a few weeks. And so about eight hours later, he called me. Like, as soon as he got off the plane, he said, I want to sign your band. I have a record label and I want to sign your band. So that's how our relationship started with him. And then mine got uh, closer to him towards the second record when I asked him to uh, write a song with me for the band. So I kind of snuck behind the band's back to do it. Um, and I was hoping that he would produce the track. He didn't end up producing the first two records because he had so many commitments that we actually didn't get him for what I was hoping we would get him for until the very, like, the 11th hour on the end of the second record. And we wrote Better Be Good to Me together, which was on the Spider record before, about a year later, Tina Turner heard it and put it on Private Dancer. And really the start of that was when I left. I was living in New York, and the first part of the book is sort of like the film noir version. And then you get to, I get to California... California and all of a sudden it's like Fuji color and wildness and sunshine and and um, that's really when my career started. It, it's so interesting because you really point out how hard it was. I mean you were 
one of the very rare women in this arena, in this area. And, you know, can you share a little bit about how difficult, even by the time you were inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2013 into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, did you say there were only, was it 14 or 16 women? Was that it? I was the 16th woman out of 400 men. Yeah. In 2013. Uh And and most of those women were singer-songwriters. They have two categories. So they have one that's the artist who writes for themselves. And then they have the ones that write for a living, that don't make records, or here and there they do, but they're mostly independent songwriters. So that narrowed it down. And then of that group, there were no other women writing for or with rock bands. I was the only one in the beginning. It's, you know, it's not that much different right now, really. I mean, rock is sort of there for the people. There's a huge fan base, but, you know, you don't really hear rock on the radio. People are following um, the bands that they grew up with. And just recently, some really good rock bands are sort of coming out and having commercial success, which is wonderful. Do you think satellite radio has anything to do with, with that? Just because I find myself listening to the 80s hits, you know, when I've, I'll go on the 80s channel. Well, I think that's what keeps it alive, mm-hmm. if not for satellite radio, because you have like, you know how you have like the 50s and then you have the 60s, they have the stations and they have the 70s and they have the 80s and they loved me on the 80s. In fact, I just did a, a interview up, I went up to Sirius Radio when I was in New York during Christmas and Mark Goodman interviewed me. And, uh, and then I did a, a show to promote the book and celebrate the book, the book release, and he emceed and opened it up. And it's just nice to have, you know, people that, I mean, the audience will vastly use huge, I think, for rock, but just not what it was. But in the 80s, it was at the front and front row center. Now it's sort of like um, a category, you know? Right. So when you started writing um, songs, it was really towards that, it was almost the perfect storm. You were writing songs, you were connected to some of the bigger stars, and then MTV opened up. Can you talk about how that affected your career? Well, as I say in the book, MTV was like the best thing that could have happened for me. It was the best thing that happened for everybody, but for me in particular, because I was writing with a lot of different artists and groups. I was also writing for R&B artists, um, not just rock but you know rock is where that was my wheelhouse you know but I think some of those chops helped when I was working with Tina because I had that element and all rock comes from R&B anyway initially and blues you know um but because in the beginning they had so little content it was it really was like you know that logo of the first man walking on the moon they had no idea what they had they didn't know what they were doing and they were just winging it as they went along so when they wanted to have content they thought oh let's do some news and then they found out that here was this girl that was writing with a lot of bands and so they would start to talk about me a lot and my name i guess got out enough i didn't have any pr or anything but the people, because of MTV, knew about me. So I ended up being in the reader's poll. I think it was like the 11th Rolling Stones reader's poll. And they listed me as one of the top songwriters out of five. And the other were all men. And they were all singer-songwriters. I mean, like big people, like Bruce Springsteen, Paul Simon. So, I mean, it was pretty It was pretty amazing to think that the public knew about me. Because, you know, I became a songwriter to sort of be in the background. And then all of a sudden I was getting this persona that um, 
I think it took me decades to realize that people knew who I was. They knew who my songs, what my, which songs I'd written, if they knew. But most people don't know, like, you know, when they listen to even the best. They don't realize that she didn't write the song. Um, she didn't write any of her songs. She's like old school. She's like Tony Bennett or or Frank Sinatra, that she does other people's songs. Can we talk a little bit about the writing process? You have written for some of the most amazing female and male singers. Is there a difference when you're writing songs with the female, like Hart and Pat Benatar and Tina Turner, obviously like amazing singers, and then you have some incredible songs that you've written with males. Is there a difference when you're writing songs with a female versus a male? You know, I think there is. And I talk about this in my book. It took me a while to realize that because um, I write from a woman's point of view. So sometimes when I wrote from a woman's point of view for a man, I'm not sure if it was as potent as writing for a man writing for a man, because as we know, we're hired, well, sorry, we're wired um, completely differently, you know? And women will talk more about emotions and feelings, and men are very cut and dry. It's like if you had a box and it was man, it would be like on and off switch, and the woman's box would be like steams and whistles and, you know, uh, attenuators and green smoke and bubbles and all kinds of stuff <laughs> coming out of it. But what I do find is if I write try to write for a man and then give it to a woman. That's the best. That's the, that's the ticket because men are able to sort of be a lot more sort of, uh, I don't know, more direct and more sort of in charge and sort of more alpha male. And so when a woman's doing it, it's very appealing. It's much sexier for a woman to be doing that. For instance, I wrote a song called space and, um, I wrote that with Mike Chapman. And it's one of my favorite songs, Cheap Trick cut it. And then another artist named Charlie Sexton cut it. Both of them cut it in the 80s. And um, it, it was never released as a single. And I thought that the song was better than the versions that they did. I mean, I love them both. It wasn't about that. It's just like they didn't, it wasn't, and I was surprised with Cheap Trick because I really wanted it to be a hard rock song. So um, a few years ago, I re-recorded the song with um, a really good female rock singer named Lena Hall, who I do a lot of work with. She won a Tony for Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and she's a great rock singer. She also stars on a show called Snowpiercer, but she's in a, in a group called La Crush that I'm producing right now, and she's a really authentic, probably the best rock singer out there that I've heard um, since you know the 80s. She's the real thing. But I gave her space, and it was completely different, and it's not a song about outer space. The lyrics are more like, I need some space. Come back some other time and place. The woman singing that is just much hotter to be to, to be in charge like that. And I think women are more like that today. You know, I mean, we've I think in some ways we haven't come very far. In other ways, we've come a long, long way. Better Be Good to Me was actually one of my very favorite songs of 80s. Just the whole thing was just one of my favorites. And then you wrote Never. That was another one of my favorite songs. It was kind of like... Colleen and I both, yeah, 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 same writer, yes, same writer, yes, and I was like, oh my goodness, this whole, you know, those were two of my very favorites, and I know Tina Turner, you know, I love that video, but I, and I love The Warrior, and when I was reading your book and you were talking about the videos, because, um, I just died laughing at the part when you talked about The Warrior, about the guy with the abacus, and you were like, 
what was he counting? I don't know. <laughs> Do you remember that part where he oh, was going? Yes. And he did it like, like, aren't I badass living with, but that was the beauty of the eighties. You know, a lot of those videos had nothing to do with anything really. When you're writing songs, I, you you described it a little bit in the book, almost like a Ouija board where the words just start to come out. But do you have a singer in mind when you're writing? Like sometimes you're asked to write, but when a song comes to you, do you have kind of a singer in mind that you think this is perfect for that? Well, you know, in that day when I was vastly more involved with my publisher, um, you would get these looking for lists. And people, a lot more people were signed to record labels at that time than there are now. Like a lot of stuff is done independently now because you can. Um, but you would get these lists and it would be like the R&B list, the rock list, and like every artist would, would be on. And then they would describe what they're looking for. And it'd be really funny because like if it was a rock record, they would say like a la Pat Benatar or a la Love is a Battlefield or Invincible or a la Tina Turner, you know. Um, and when they were doing it, what kind of, you know, what they were looking for. So that made it easy if you wanted to sit down and actually write for an artist. Those things were pretty much hit or miss if you were going to get on there. Because, of course, if they're telling you, they're telling everybody else in the business. So then you have to, you have that competition thing going, you know. Um, then there were artists like Tina that would call me after she had some success with me and say, what do you have? I'm doing a record. Send me some songs. And so I would write with her in mind or I would get called in like in the chapter with Rod Stewart, where I was asked to write with with him. And um, of course, you know, the ending of that, which I probably should leave it uh, in the book. But um, (laughs) it ended up that I didn't write with him, but I wrote him the song and he cut it. So it's sort of like all of the above, you know, and then I always uh, and I, I talk about this in the book, like if I was sort of being summoned like I was to Rod or Hart, they invited me to a rehearsal. I wouldn't show up empty-handed I would sort of clear my schedule for the next couple of days and I would start to make the beginnings of songs and record them so that I could play them and they could get excited and go let's work on that because they were you know they're calling you for fresh ideas and the worst thing you can do is show up and you're just thinking oh we're just going to jam and it's just going to miraculously happen it's like I'm, I'm not that it's not that easy for me to do that. I mean, it's probably easier now than it was then. But, you know, you're also nervous. You want to make sure they like it. And so it's really good to show up with something. So I would always come prepared and leave just I, like on the Rod Stewart song. I could have finished it, which I ended up doing. But you want to leave just enough so you can entice them to write it with you. Because you always figured if they cut the song, they have more skin in the game. So there's a better chance that they'll cut the song. It's good for them because they have a credit and even on their own record, which seems silly. But, you know, that was at a time where like now all of a sudden a lot of writers were getting involved. And we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back. The bad part was that if they didn't end up putting it on their record, even though you wrote it with them, their name was on the record. And then if you went to get it cut somewhere else, more times than not, people would look and go, well, I I really don't want to do a song that the own artist wrote and turned down. It wasn't usually, it wasn't the artist. It was the label. I was reading in the warrior. I think the part where it's heart to heart. We, what is the line is, is she's, I'm, I'm not going to sing it because nobody wants to oh, hear come that. On, Bridget. <laughs> no, come on. I think it's heart to heart. You win. And, um, I thought it was hearts. Hearts are hard to win. <laughs> so on the best, it's like, you're simply the best, better than all the rest, best and rest. Right. 
better than anyone, anyone I ever met. Okay, that's a soft, what I call a soft rhyme, but it works. I'm stuck on your heart. I hang on every word you said. Everybody says say. I hang on, I hang on every word you say. Tear us apart, baby. I would rather be dead. Well, say and dead don't rhyme. So it's supposed to be said and dead. But everybody that's, everyone from Celine, uh, Adrian, Adrian, uh, Adrian Warren, who did a fabulous job as Tina Turner in the musical, she's mm-hmm. got it wrong. I had to tell Noah Reed, he had it wrong. He was the one that did the acoustic version on Schitt's Creek. Celine Dion has done it wrong. James Bay, everybody got it wow. wrong. Like oh I've never goodness. heard to them. You know, oh, the, yeah. her, it's a little hard to tell with Tina, but she does say said. Oh, well, wow. I think people just get it. They've heard it so many times. They just start singing the way yeah, they're course, used to saying it, you know. Yeah. And a lot of songs don't rhyme and don't have to. No, there's no cardinal rule that says it has to. It's just it's an art form, especially in theater. It's an art form to the point where I think that they're a bit snobby when it comes to other forms of music, which is why they have a really bad attitude about what they call jukeboxes, which I call catalog musicals. And for people that don't know what I'm talking about, a jukebox is when you have a musical like a Tina Turner one where the music will already existed. Okay. So it's like Motown was a jukebox. Uh, there's so many of them right now out there that, um, yeah, when they say jukebox, to me, it sounds like, you know, fast food, like, uh, <laughs> think of like a, yeah. a diner. One of the things that I thought stood out in the book is the difference in times you were always being introduced to famous people there. You know, you'd be invited to a party here. You were invited to a party there. And the difference between when people introduced you as, hi, this is my friend Holly versus, hi, this is Holly Knight, the songwriter. The respect that you got just from being introduced properly happened time and time again. How frustrating was that for you? Yeah, it was crazy. And twice it was two of the biggest artists that I idolized. So that's what sort of was like a bit of a, a, you know, you you can read about it in the book because it's not that they were being um, shallow. It's more like, I think when you get to these artists that are so big, they meet so many people that they sort of do, you know, let's say it's a backstage party and they, someone introduces you, say, nice to meet you. I mean, how many times can you be sincere when you're meeting hundreds and hundreds of people? So in order to stand out rather, yeah, if it's just a party, I wanted to be introduced as, as Holly, but these two times, um, these are like two, I was like a fangirl, you know, um, I was just introduced as Holly and then they found out by the later on, um, who I was while I was still there. And both of them actually caught to it and came back and said, I didn't realize you were Holly Knight, the songwriter. Of course I know your songs. I'm really honored to meet you. And I was like, um, on the one hand, I was very, very flattered. On the other, I thought it's kind of messed up that you have to go, you have to be someone for someone. But I understood it. I mean, it's just, um, I don't know, does that... I'm not sure if that made me seem shallow or not or, at all. Or no, but I, I don't I, think I, it did. It's no. hard enough for women to get taken seriously anyway. You know, that's what mm-hmm. I think. That's the point that was made was it was you worked really hard to get, you know, even when, right. you know, one of the instances was Eddie Van Halen. And I thought it was funny that you went in and you said, I'm just going to go sit with Valerie Bertinelli and her girlfriends. And then, and then you're like, Oh, I wrote that. You know, you talk about the song came on. Oh, I wrote that song. And then all of a sudden the warrior came on MTV when I went out and 
the reaction was so different. They were just so, it's like all the girls like getting together and like, wow, I love your hair. Wow. You know, men are like, yeah, whatever. But like sort of, so it came on and I just saw them singing the words. So I said to Valerie Bertinelli, I said, um, I wrote that song. And she looked at me like, what? She said, you wrote <laughs> The Warrior? And I said, yes. Yeah. She said, no way. And she then she says to her friends, like, Holly, this is Holly. She wrote that song. And then all of a sudden it was like, I had so much more fun with them, you know? Yeah. The thing that was most annoying was like, I had gone to that party with, with Paul Stanley, who I was dating on and off from Kiss and he had invited me there. And he was one of those people. He, I don't know if he was deliberate or if he just didn't even think about like, this is Holly, you know, but I did feel like every time, like I was hanging out with them, they started talking about music. Like Eddie would kind of look at me like, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about here. You're, you're whatever. Just like totally blank. And then they got into songwriting and I tried to interject in that conversation. They both turned and glared at me, which was like, really? And, um, <laughs> yeah. and then afterwards, as we were leaving, Paul told him who I was and Eddie came over to me in the garage as we were leaving. He said, he actually said, I'm such a jerk. I'm so sorry. I, I totally, I didn't, uh, I didn't know who you were. And I think he was quite embarrassed, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, kind of. I, I felt okay. he's like, yeah. credit for saying that for, and, for owning up to it. Yeah, because yeah. I felt like if you were a man and and he didn't know what you were, and I'm not saying this about Eddie Van, I don't know Eddie, I didn't know Eddie Van Halen, right. but right. Right. I feel like in a similar a similar situation, if you had been a man sitting there and interjecting, maybe you wouldn't have been treated the same way. And oh, sit- totally, nothing maybe yes. about it. It'd yeah, be like the men's club, and you know, with the uh, yeah, it's, I, know, that, I know there yeah. are a lot of barriers that I had to break through, and still do, you know, right on a daily basis. The the beginning of my book, I have this dedication. Well, the dedication is to anybody you ever had a dream and was told no, because that was me. Um, my whole life, on and off, even like a few years ago when it came to doing this book, I was told no. Um, and stupidly, I, I gave a few pages to someone that represented a lot of uh, publishers, and she read it, and it was a she, and she said, uh, you know, it's, I like it. It's, it's engaging. It's really well written. It was only a few chapters, of, you know. And um, she said, but you're not a household name and I won't be able to get you a deal. So she shut me down and I listened to her. I put the book away for a year and a half. I thought, do not do that. Do not listen to other people's opinions. So people kept coming at me going, no, you've got to write a book. You have so many great stories. I love listening to you when you talk and blah, blah, blah. So I did it and I got a deal. And... um, so don't listen when people are naysayers. You have the only yes, yes you really need is the one, you know, inside of you. But the other thing I wrote was, you can't feed me to the wolves. They come when I call, you know, and it has that sword. <laughs> That's sort of the same thing of, I will tell you how I want it to be done. I'm the paying client. Speaking of standing up for yourself, one of the stories that you have in the book, which made me a little sad because I love Bon Jovi and I love Bruce Springsteen and anything New Jersey, but there's a story in your book about when you were writing with John Bon Jovi and you were invited to a barbecue at his house. Can you tell us that story and how you did stand up for yourself there? Which was, um, I can't even believe you had to, but can you tell us that Well, story? I couldn't either. Mm-hmm. But basically, um, I guess it was a roadie of his or something. I don't know if he was drunk or if he was just naturally that way, but he was arguing with me. I don't even remember what it was about. I mean, this is like 40 years ago. But he started saying to me, "If he said, 
if you don't, um, if you don't, if I don't remember what it was, if it, but the nature of it was, if you don't agree with me, I'm going to throw you in this pool. We were standing next to John's pool. And I, I thought like, are you seriously? Did you just say that to me? It's like, you're a roadie. I'm a peer. I just wrote a hit song with, with, you know, I didn't say that, but I'm thinking that, you know, like, and I thought, God, if John only knew what was going on, he would be, he'd probably fire the guy, right? Anyway, the guy threw me in the pool. And I had like actually a really nice outfit on. I wanted to look nice. And I had an Azadine denim couture outfit on. Not that that matters. And, you know, I was also painstakingly honest. I said that uh, this was the 80s and I had a little bit of uh, cocaine in pristine cocaine in my pocket. I mean, I said after that, so nobody gets nervous. Like I haven't done drugs in 30 years, you know, but those were the times. And, um, for me, the pressure was just to remain thin all the time. So if I did do blow, it was mostly for those reasons. Uh, but anyway, it doesn't matter. It's no, no one's there to judge. This is my honest story. I tried to remember everything as accurately as I could. Well, I was dripping wet and I found John and I was almost in tears. I said, your roadie just threw me in the pool. And I thought he was going to go and say to him, well, what's wrong with you? You know, this is my right. guest. And he just kind of looked at me with his arms and was like, and, and I even told him the bit about the, the, the cocaine thinking it would be funny, even though I knew he didn't do drugs. Um, and he looked at me, well, you deserved it basically because you shouldn't be doing drugs anyway. And I have no pity for you and didn't reprimand the guy. And I walked off there going, did that just happen? Like who throws someone in a pool? I mean, unless you're buddies and your friends and you're at that kind of party, you know? And um, so I walked up and I thought like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I thought I'm leaving. I'm walking out of here. I don't care if it's Jesus Christ, Bon Jovi, Elvis, it doesn't matter. I don't like the way I was treated. And we just written a song called Stick to Your Guns. And I'm thinking, you have to, you have to follow those words. It's like when someone is, is sort of putting you down, you have to be honest and forthright enough to say, you know, uh, this isn't okay. This is not acceptable behavior. So I went up to him. I said, please call my car. Cause he had called a car for me because he lived in New Jersey in the middle of nowhere in the suburbs or whatever. And I was in New York city and he said, okay. And I said, and I said, you owe your roadie owes me an apology. And so do you for saying nothing. See, I'd already gone through this growing up with my mother who was uh, abusive and my father who became my best friend and I loved him to pieces. But when I was growing up, he didn't stick up for me. He didn't defend me. He didn't believe me, didn't care. I tapped into that same exact feeling in that moment. And I walked out of there with my head high and I thought, I'm going to tell the story. He's probably not going to like me for telling the story or won't even care or whatever. I mean, we, be, we talked after that. It was fine. I ended up playing on a record that he produced for a share. But it was just like, you know, no, you will not treat me this way and get away with it. You know. And I feel like when women do that, even, you know, they did some, but I feel like when women do what you did in that moment and went back, the person that was in the wrong may not say anything at that moment, but I think it'll make them really think about, you know, condoning something like that again. Well, so even the fact that he, he touched my body, he picked me up like yes, exactly. and he had his hand on my butt and yeah. just threw me in there. It's like, who How obnoxious. That, yeah. that's, that's assault. Yeah, that is assault. <laughs> is. I mean, it's really, assault. if yeah. you really wanted to really 
go for it. You know, you could have done that, you know, I mean, yeah. but well, you do. I try, just I wanted mean, John to stick up for me and yes. try off. And yeah. he should have. And I think you kind of say in the book later, I mean, not only do you show that he was stalked by some crazies, but also that you kind of made amends. It doesn't make yeah. it right what he did, yeah. but you do make amends later and, and kind of move past it. Right. And, yeah, that's yeah, that's why I was saying I ended up playing on the share record and then we moved past it. But um, I never really uh, spoke to him again. or I haven't spoken to him since then or whatever. Um, but uh, it, it's not because I'm angry. It's just, you know, you move on. You don't, you don't, right. There's no reason for you with everybody you work with to even meet them, let alone stay in touch with them, you know. And I talk about that in the book, too. There were certain people that I knew we got really close working on three or four records together. But that didn't mean they, those were the kind of people that would, were, you know, everybody, if you're lucky, maybe you have three or four people in your life that you really can say are your friends that would do anything for you. And then there's another tier of friends that you love, but you know, a lot of time you live in a different part of the country or something and it's not a steady thing. And then you have other people that say, I love you, babe, that, you know, they don't and they don't know it, but you sort of go along with it. And then there are other people that you just don't find the value of them being in your life. And you have to basically remove those people from your life. Those are very few and far between, but I don't know about you. I've had a few of them. Who would you like to write songs for now? If you could pick and choose like one or two of the artists that are really popular right now, who would you like to write songs for? Um, I would like to either write songs for or with Lady Gaga because I like the fact that she's a chameleon and she's very artsy or she can be very straight or whatever. And I move around like that too because I studied classical for 10 years. I have produced several albums with Tony Bennett's daughter, Antonia Bennett, sorry. I don't know. I would just love to write with her. Um, as far as artists, there's Adele, there's Halsey. I mean, it's not a small list, actually. The Bruno Mars, Harry Styles, um, Julipa, and there's a new band called Manskin, which is a rock band, and they are really, really great. Um, I would love to work with Kelly Clarkson. I feel like that's long overdue, and especially after I started doing The Warrior, I said like, to myself, I have to work with her. So... I'm hoping, believe it or not, I was hoping when I wrote this book, too, that it would put me on the radar to some of these artists that aren't aware of me that might read this book and go, oh, she's so fun and she's so, you know, she's a great writer. Like, why aren't I working with her? I'm actually hoping that that might, as an off, you know, an offshoot thing happen. A big thing I got from you, too, in this book is that you just never, you were tenacious. You, like, just like you said when you met Mike Chapman. You're like, you're right. I'm going to call. And and my friend Colleen is a lot like that. And I appreciate that. I can't that. write songs. So no, she can't go. write songs. She is tenacious. But um, she, but I'm like, I'm so happy to have a partner like Colleen because she is so tenacious. And I found from your, that you're tenacious, you're talented and tenacious. And, I, you know, that just kind of makes the perfect I don't know, songwriter, because when I read all the songs that you've written, it is like just, you know, you're from singing, the time. You're really yeah. singing in your head singing, the whole book. Yeah, because that's Colleen and that was our wow. prime time. Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much, Holly, for coming on. We hope everybody checks out the book. Thank you for the song. And the audio book. And I'm the narrator. And oh, oh right. good. Yeah, I narrated and um, there's also little uh, snippets of original demos 
to some of my biggest songs that nobody's, I've never released it before. So there are demos of The Best and The Warrior and Love is a Battlefield. Well, thank you so much, Holly Knight, for being on our show. Of course, Colleen is teasing me that I fangirled bigger than I've ever fangirled. But, but you wouldn't sing. I tried to get you to oh, sing. nobody wants <laughs> to hear that. Nobody needs to, nor do they want to. I, w- I am not that cruel of a person to do that to anybody. So make sure that you check out that book, I Am The Warrior, My Crazy Life Writing, The Hits, and Rocking the MTV 80s. So yeah. guys, make sure you're following us on all forms of social media. If you have any questions, you can always email us at hotflasheskooltopics at gmail. And we will talk to you next time. Have a great week. Bye.